name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask your blessing on our efforts this morning, and not only this morning, but as we go forward in the study of Judaism. Help us to understand what the Jewish people went through in the early days uh, of their formation, and why they today can even at the time of Jesus Accept your teachings. Help us to understand and, and appreciate what the Catholic Church is giving to us, what it means to us today, and how we have absorbed many of the teachings of Judaism, but not the attitude. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. Well, I see almost a full house, that means that you haven't gotten discouraged or bored or whatever, so uh, that's, that's, that's good. Our main topics of discussion today will be how God fed the Jewish people as they uh, wandered through the desert. Again, not that they didn't know where they were going or how to get there, it was informed of punishment for the golden calf, uh, what's that? And then the building of the ark. But before we get to those two items, uh, those, those two subject matters, I want to go back to last week and cover a couple points that I should have but didn't. Uh, one is the burning bush story. This is where Moses first encounters God. Uh, pending sheep and sees this uh, bush that's burning and yet the bush is not being consumed. I went through this last week. But in the process of God revealing himself to Moses, Moses says to him at one point in time, well Lord, if I have to go back to the, uh, my own people as a pharaoh and ask for this unusual request of all of the uh, Hebrew people from Egypt, who am I to say has sent me? Where do I get any authority? And God says to him, tell him that I am sent you. And of course, the meaning to I am doesn't sound too much to us today, but to the people at that time, it presented and is the meaning of God himself. And it comes out, when you go back into the ancient Hebrew, it comes out Yahweh. Y-A-W-H-E-W. Yahweh. Now, that is God's name in accordance with what he was trying to get across to Moses. And it means I am all that is. I am everything. I made everything. I created everything. All good things. What Yahweh really means is I am all that is. There is nothing above me or beyond me. I am who is. And from that point, the word Yahweh was taken as such a, a sacred word, a sacred meaning, 
that the Jewish people would not even pronounce it, or they would not even write it. That is how the word Adonai in their language came into being. Adonai is translated into the word Lord. That is where we get the word Lord. Lord really means ruler. Now, let me ask you, and I don't want to raise hands or necessarily any uh, feedback, but how many of you actually treat God in Jesus Christ as your ruler? It's something to think about. It is an important point in who God is. But let me go on for a minute. The word, the idea of giving a name from one person to another is not done in Jewish society, particularly at the time of Christ and before, because it meant that you were giving some part of yourself, some authority to another person. Remember, people did not write in those days. Most people could not write in those days. So, Transmitting information was uh, almost a ceremony, something very important. You didn't go to a uh, meeting or a community uh, event of some kind, and there'd be little signs of paper on the shoulder or whatever, saying, my name is Joe or Pete or Mary or Sally or whatever. They didn't do that anymore those days. People did not give their name out to strangers. If you gave your, your name, it means you were giving part of yourself. And that whole concept has held through uh, all the generations and even in today in Jewish society they still do not give out their name uh, just willy-nilly to anybody. Uh, even when we get into the commandments, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. We've all heard that. Most of us interpret that as saying, you shall not swear. And that's not what it means. It means you shall not take God in vain. Now, swearing is a small part of that, yes. But it's far more than just swearing or uh, foul language of some kind. Uh, in Jewish society, in ancient writings, uh, to swear did not mean uh, some expletive. It meant an oath. It meant that you were giving a promise of some kind to another person or persons. So keep that in mind. Go back and ask yourself, is Jesus really my Lord, my ruler, the ruler of my life, what I do and what I say? Another point that I wanted to uh, bring out was from that same idea of Moses and God having a face-to-face -face relationship. Uh, 
there's another example where when Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, there's thunder and lightning and smoke and all kinds of noise and so forth. And the people are told not to go up to the mountain, uh, but they are to stay behind because this is a special time when God is conversing with Moses. And the people are frightened uh, from all of this noise. And in the... See, I think it's chapter 20. Yeah, we go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 18. It says, When the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the trumpet blast and the mountain smoking, they all feared and trembled so that they took up a position much further away and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. <laughs> but let not God speak to us, or we shall die. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come to you only to test you and to put his fear upon you, lest you should sin. Still the people remained at a distance, while Moses approached the crowd, where God was. And the whole idea of fear of God prevails throughout all of the Old Testament. In other words, one of the main differences between Judaism and Christianity is that the people in Judah, under Judaism uh, are responsible and responsive to God out of fear. Christianity, we should be responsive to God out of love. And we should look at God as love. Now, the bad feature with looking at God only as love is so many people forget that there is another side of the coin. God is not only perfect love and wanting to love us and have us love him in return, but there is the other responsibility of justice. We can't just do anything we want and say, oh God, I love you. Because that is not love. Love is, includes obedience. Right. Very important point that carries out through all of Judaism, throughout all of the Old Testament and into the New Testament very much. Uh, remember, Old Testament is ruled by fear. The New Testament is and should be ruled by love. I hope by this time you've been able to see some growth in the Jewish people. This is a family that started out with Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac and his family. Uh, out of whom came uh, Jacob and the twelve tribes, and from the land of Ur, they moved to what is Palestine or Israel, and then they were there for a number of years, and then God moved them down into Egypt, and they were there as guests. They were given uh, a welcome 
they were given the best parts of uh, the land to settle in order to cre increase and multiply and to grow as a community, as a nation, uh, and, and really as a family. And that worked well. If they had stayed in Palestine or Israel, they would have started to migrate out, further out. And that would have been much more difficult for them to develop the community that God wanted them to be. Also, without saying too much about it, without dragging it on, but the point is that God wanted them to be a model community through whom he could share his love and have it spread to other nations. Unfortunately, the whole idea of sticking together was taken too literally and to extremes, and they became an exclusive community rather than an exclusive. Uh, how would I would say that. Include, they became very exclusive rather than inclusive. Yes. And uh, that is not what God wanted to do. Now, the thing is, we as Christians have the same point that God is trying to make. We need to be inclusive and spread our beliefs through our language and our actions as well as teaching when it's uh, appropriate and try to evangelize us put all of that into modern day language into evangelization. That's what it's all about. And so many Catholics today say, oh, I can't do that because I don't know my faith. Well, what are you doing about it? Carol? That's the point. They don't know their faith. Well, all right. It's at least you're recognizing the point, but what are you doing about it? That doesn't mean that you have to go up and down uh, Douglas Boulevard or you know, Pleasant Grove saying that you have uh, with a board on your shoulders and saying, I'm a Catholic, come and listen to me, or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. God puts us in certain uh, positions and points and times using the talents he has given you, and he expects you to use it to broaden the knowledge of the, the people around you. Again, the point that I really want you to start seeing is how this plan of salvation is now developing through this community of Jewish people. And we will talk a little bit about uh, Moses having difficulty in governing so many people, uh, particularly out in the desert. Uh, so many trials has gone through. So he needs some help. And through his father-in-law, Jethro, he develops a system of what is called minor judges. In other words, certain people are put over uh, each of the 12 tribes uh, of Jacob. And they become a little bit of like assistance supervisors. They are not judges in the modern-day sense. Later on, we will be talking in the next few weeks, we will be talking about uh, the judges 
trouble there was a lot of that kind of thing. That's how Moses got rescued by the Pharaoh's uh, daughter, maybe Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's sister, I forget which, I didn't make a difference. Uh, you had that event. You had another slaughter of the firstborn at the time of Jesus. Uh, so you have a number of those kinds of things. Jesus himself has said that if anyone dies for the sake of the gospel or the cross of Christ, that he will be saved if he dies for those reasons. All right. Uh, so we cannot judge uh, the wise and the wherefores of God. Sometimes they seem to be uh, extreme, and yet that is <laughs> that is often the way that God works. Now, in talking about the people leaving Egypt, they left in haste. They had to take their bread that was a daily ritual uh, for them out of necessity. And they took it without worrying about the yeast and rising and that kind of thing. And so that is where the whole idea of matzah comes from. Matzah is a form of unleavened bread uh, that is baked without the aid of yeast or any other ingredient that would cause it to rise, such as salt. And matzah is one of the primary ingredients of the Seder service. And it is to remind the people uh, that one of the main ingredients has been left out. We today use uh, or, or use the same concept in the host that we use to uh, distribute the body of Christ at Mass. It is made of uh, enriched flour and oil and no leaven of any kind. There's no salt, there's no yeast in it when it is made. But it is the same representative uh, of God's gift to us as the man who was at the time of uh, Moses and the Jews wandering in the desert. After they had left, and it says about two and a half months later, well, that would be somewhat reasonable if they had uh, taken along uh, certain types of food that would last that long, or lived off the land for a while, but now they're getting tired of living off the land, and they've exhausted all of the supplies that they had brought with them from Egypt, and so they are complaining, and rightly so, you might imagine. Uh, again, this is a way of God showing that he can and will take care of his people if they are true to his teachings and uh, his instructions. So, of course, uh, Moses pleads to God for help in feeding them, and God says, all right, I will feed them with manna. Uh, of course, he didn't use that word. That came from the question that the Jewish people raised when they began to see it coming. Uh, God told them to be patient and they would be fed. And the next morning, we have this white substance 
lying around on the ground, and they were told to pick it up, and it was edible. I understand from certain uh, people today that there is still a similar type of thing that does grow in the Sinai Desert and comes from some uh, excretion of insects from the trees of the tamis, the tamis tree, and it is edible and uh, has so sweet to the taste. It doesn't sound too appetizing, but uh, I'll still go for a bit back. Uh, anyways, so after the uh, manna is spread on the ground, and the word manna comes from their question of what is it, translated back, uh, is where the word manna comes from. What is it? All right. And, of course, it was new to the Jewish people. And, uh, they had to learn how to use it. And it could be boiled or, or uh, you know, roasted or whatever. And it tasted differently under each of the uh, treatments, like uh, a lot of food will. Okay. Then, in addition to that, they wanted meat. Uh, so God brought them flocks of quail. And there were so uh, many of them that they could be caught virtually by just by hand, picking them, picking them up. Uh, no shotguns in those days. But the whole idea of manna and quail was to have God show them that he could and would take care of them in their struggle, in their wandering in the desert, uh, and that there would be other kinds of protection. Remember, that was part of the original covenant made back with Abraham and renewed again through Moses. The whole idea of descendants, and now you can see how that part of the covenant has developed. There are numerous people uh, within the Jewish nation that is now developing, and that was part of God's plan. Descendants, land, they were headed towards the promised land that they their ancestors had inherited uh, from the treatment of God, and protection, protection of all kinds. God was going to protect his people because he wanted them to build themselves into a model community that would be a light to the nations. Remember that phrase, a light to the nations is extremely important, not only for them, but for us. We, in turn, should be a light to the nations. That is, all of those people around us. The word nations now is sort of a general term. And the Jewish people, uh, in their misunderstanding, are making themselves an exclusive community. They use the word nations, which is then translated into Gentile. So, for a Jewish person uh, to speak to a Gentile, which was avoided at all costs, uh, unfortunately, against what God would 
wanted, but nevertheless, anyone that was not a Jew was a Gentile. Didn't make any difference where he came from, uh, or who he was, or what he was. He was a Gentile, and that was a big no-no to their culture, but not to what God wanted of them. So, you've got to look into this whole idea of the manna in the desert. Now, one thing I want to do is, uh, how many of you still have this handout uh, that we did last week? It's this one here that says, The Holy Eucharist born from the Jewish Seder, or Passover meal. So, the Christian Eucharist, that is what we used to call Holy Communion. The church is trying to get away from that because people used to say years ago, oh, I went to Mass and Holy Communion, as if they were two separate events or two parts. No, the Mass is called the celebration of the Eucharist, which includes the distribution of the body of Christ. The Christian Eucharist has a prehistory in the traditions of Israel. Jews from ancient times to our own days have been commemorating the exodus from Egypt in the Passover Seder, or that Passover meal. This is a ritual meal, an action meditation, elaborated from the ordinary table grace. In other words, it's an extension from the traditional dinner celebrating the Passover. Now, they had special foods at this meal. But in addition to these special foods, you could go hungry and leave the table hungry if that's all you had to eat. And not all of it is very appetizing either. Uh, so there's all kinds of other foods. But at this meal, the Seder, there are special foods required. You have uh, horseradish, you have applesauce, you have uh, boiled eggs, uh, you have bitter herbs such as maybe kale or uh, cabbage or, you know, any uh, vegetable that is somewhat bitter in its own right without uh, other things added to it to make it more palatable. It recalls the liberation from the slavery in Egypt as the wonderful intervention of God in history, revealed as the powerful and compassionate one. In this liberation, they become the people of God, right, through the plan of God, witnesses to the whole world, including themselves, witnesses to the whole world, their light to the nations. They are to witness to the Lordship of God by the, by the quality of their lives and their peoplehood. Hence, the Passover Seder ritual elements, especially required foods, are laid out on the table and consumed with readings, meditation, and commentary, singing of psalms and hymns and festivity. The Seder takes place in families, not in synagogues. Not in, well, they don't have churches, they don't have temples any longer, even though you may see a Jewish building that says temple such and such, 
Technically, that is not correct. There are no more temples since the temple, the God Temple, uh, was destroyed in Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, never to be rebuilt. There's a reason for that, which we'll get into at another time. It binds the people together, both in the present generation, in all lands, and in their generations across the ages. It affirms and constitutes their peoplehood. The New Testament attributes the Christian Eucharist to the creativity of Jesus himself in adapting the Passover Seder ritual and infusing it with a new meaning. This is the Last Supper now. It now signifies unity in him. It celebrates the new exodus from death to a sinful world forward to the resurrection in a new creation focused on Godhead. The accounts of the Last Supper or the farewell meal that Jesus took with his disciples before his arrest and execution are highly stylized and certainly contain speeches that are composite accounts of speeches from various other occasions. This means that if you read the Last Supper accounts, now John does not have a Last Supper account in the Gospel of John, but he puts it back into chapter 6, which is called the uh, Sermon on the Bread of Life. Uh, it is really the same idea. And what he is, what, what this theologian is saying here is that it is highly stylized. In other words, uh, John puts a lot of emphasis on the Last Supper scene in the Gospel of John that probably came from other speeches and, uh, writers, not writers, but other speeches and doings of Jesus Christ at other times, but are more appropriately uh, presented again uh, at this time. The common core in these uh, accounts, both the Seder and the Last Supper, or our Mass today, is their situating the action of Jesus within the Passover Seder tradition, and they're isolating the blessing over the unleavened bread or the host, and over the fourth and last cup of wine, <coughs> they show Jesus breaking and sharing the unleavened bread, which is the bread of affliction, and also the bread of the breakthrough into the radically new life of freedom and peoplehood of Christianity. And I, I'm adding this on my own. Jesus, Jews celebrate the past that can't protect them forward. It is still a commemoration of something in the past, period. Christians celebrate Easter, a past event that gives them an incentive to move forward to everlasting life and our resurrection. You understand the difference? The Jewish people are celebrating something that happened in the past, and that's fine. And that's what they should be doing. But it can't help them move forward. 
in their faith. Christians should take and look at the celebration of not only Easter, but the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ as one event with three parts. But they should look at it as a opening of the gates of heaven where now we can move in and return to God the Father at the end of our life and at the end of all time. A big difference coming out of the same thing. God calls Moses up again to the mountain where a guy should have had, you know, an escalator or a helicopter or something. This is what the Lord then said to Moses. Tell the Israelites to take up a collection for me. From every man you shall accept the contribution that his heart prompts him to give. In other words, it's a voluntary thing. These are the contributions you shall accept from them. And then it goes down at verse 8. It says, they shall make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell in their midst. Underline that in your Bibles, would you please? The whole idea of the Ark of the Covenant. One person asked me one time, oh, I thought that was only something out of Indiana Jones. No. It is, it was a real event. Now, for those of you, and I'm sure all of you have read Exodus all the way through, particularly chapters 25 through 27 or 8, uh, did you notice anything unusual? Hmm? What's that? Yes, it's very detailed. <laughs> That's true. And it's detailed with things that couldn't possibly have been within their possession in their escape from Egypt. Did you all kind of have that enter into your mind? If they didn't have food, you know, if they were starving for food, which was probably the most important item, how would they have a hundred feet, hundred and fifty feet, uh, let's see, hundred cubits would be hundred and fifty feet of fine linen. Linen has to be made from flax, which certainly would not grow in the desert. No. The point that is being made here uh, is the idea of a glorified box, and I gave you copies last week of it. I hope you still have that. All right. This is what we're talking about here. All right. Remember, I think I said facetiously last week that they would have to have had a truckload of gold uh, in order to put on this. All right. Now, why? What, what is the connection? What's the difference? Remember, I said that the first four books of the Bible, I'm talking about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written 
long, long after the events. The book of Genesis was written even long after that, around the 5th century B.C. All right. What is, what the description is here in Exodus came long afterwards. And it came from when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Solomon's temple many years after the actual event of the wandering in the desert. Because when these people, or whoever wrote this book of Exodus, they had no idea exactly of this concept. It wasn't until the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Solomon's temple in the 9th century, or early 9th century uh, B.C., uh, nearly a thousand years later, see. And it was embellished and uh, glorified and so forth and so on. And the Holy of Holies was installed. But that's not really that important. What is important is the fact of what is the Ark of the Covenant and what did it represent. In the desert, it could have only been, uh, you know, a box maybe that size made out of whatever was available, but we don't have much wood of any kind in the desert. And to make something like that would have been uh, virtually impossible, all right, uh, besides the, the things that went with it, all of the investments in the articles uh, and utensils, etc., etc., uh, would have been impossible to make. So the descriptions all came from a much later time period. And when uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Israel, in the 6th century B.C., he took all of the utensils and apparently destroyed the Ark of the Covenant because it has never been found after that, even though the prophet Jeremiah uh, makes a sort of vague reference to the fact that he took it and uh, hid it. Well, maybe he did, but I, most people do not that it was probably destroyed along with a lot of other things in trying to take the gold off of it uh, by the Babylonians in the 6th century. All right. But it was, yes, Madge, you had a question? Well, that's the point I'm making. They didn't. They couldn't have. Even if they did, there was no way to smell it down. Uh, you know, and uh, make such a, an intricate thing as that. Okay. Well, you don't really have to have uh, a whole lot. And I'm sure other people are just as uh, concerned about the same thing. Uh, the instructions were written. But remember, the Jewish people in their writing love to exaggerate and glorify embellish. And so that is what we get. Because this was the most sacred thing 
that they had in their possession representing God. Alright? So, the words were, you know, probably the most extravagant things that they could put on here. We have no idea because no one has any pictures, no one has any way to uh, know what it really looked like. Things from the Egyptians and were given, gladly given, you know, to get up. You're right, that part of it. Uh, but there certainly couldn't have been enough to fulfill the requirements here. So, from the research that I've done, most people feel that the descriptions that are in this book came from a much later time period. All right, but the, yes, they did have some art. We're not sure exactly. Yes. That's how they identified that God was there. Yes, yes. And more importantly, what did it mean? Okay. The Ark of the Covenant was meant several things, really. First of all, it was to contain three main items. The Ten Commandments, you know, the Xerox copy, like I said. Uh, the Ten Commandments, the staff that Aaron, not Moses, but that Aaron used to strike the Red Sea, or whatever it was, in order for it to part, and Israelites could go across to a dry land, and also was to contain a uh, jar of the manna, representing God's constant protection and his daily feeding of them while they were uh, wandering in the desert. It was interesting because, as you read, I'm sure, in the instructions, that they were to gather on a daily basis only enough uh, for their daily use. If they took more than that, it would rot. With the exception of on Thursday evening, they would collect twice as much in order to have, or Friday morning, I guess that would be really, uh, Friday morning they would collect twice as much in order to last through the uh, Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. Yes, Rita? That had special blessing and God's protection. So, those three items, and it's interesting because if you read, uh, which I hope you will in the next few weeks, the books of First uh, and Second Samuel, you'll see that the Ark of the Covenant has a very interesting history. It is uh, it is worshipped and glorified uh, in the early days. It is shown later on. It is passed over to the Philistines, or is caught by uh, the Philistines as part of booty in a, in a battle. Uh, it goes round and round, and then it has an interesting ending before it gets back into the temple in Israel. Uh, it is placed on the uh, back of uh, a donkey who is then uh, struck, 
so that the donkey will then head towards uh, Jerusalem and return to uh, the Israelites or the Jewish people. Uh, The reason I say Israelites or Jewish people or the Hebrew people, the difference is that these people were not called Jews until the latter part of the 6th century. After the Babylonian captivity, I think I may have gone through this once before with you, but it's always important to kind of understand. The word Jew is not derogatory if used properly. That's what they call themselves. The word Jew came into uh, existence after the Babylonian uh, exile ended because they went back to the land of Judah and were called Judahites for a while. They were called Judahites by the Babylonians and by the Persians and the Greeks, early Greeks. But eventually, as we all know, words do change over a period of time, and the word Judahites was reduced to Jew. And that's what it is referring to. Today, there's a little different connotation, in a way, because you have the country is Israel, the language is Hebrew, and the religion is referred to as Judaism, all right, or Jew, all right. So they all are referring essentially to the same thing or the same place, uh, but in different ways. The nationality is Israel, the language is Hebrew, and the religion is Judaism. The people that profess to be part of Judaism are Jews. Is this clear enough? Alright. Now, the point that I'm trying to get across here is that down through the centuries, the Ark of the Covenant represented God among his people. A very important point. To the, and it was so important that people were not permitted to touch the Ark of the Covenant, even down to the time of our Christ. All right. It was embedded in the Holy of Holies of the Temple, the sacred part of the Temple that only the high priest could go in, and he only once a year on the Day of Atonement. The point I'm making here is that this was God's way of being among his people in some visible form. Even though they couldn't see it, they knew it was in the temple. Uh, When the temple was destroyed, not once but twice, at the time of the Babylonian exile, it was because of their sinfulness, their apostasy, their worshipping of foreign gods and all kinds of of, uh, gods, you might say gods with a small g. God punished them by removing himself 
from them, prisons. When they returned to Israel after the Babylonian captivity, they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. The temple was destroyed, but eventually uh, partially rebuilt. They didn't have something to put in the Holy of Holies to worship as God. Now, God didn't want them to worship, but to be reminded of him. Unfortunately, they worship the Holy of Holies or the Ark of the Covenant. So what did they do? They put in scrolls of the books that were written. That would have been only four, because the fifth had not been written yet. Today, the Jewish people have in their Holy of Holies portion of their synagogue, which is not exactly a temple, but they often treat it as such. They have scrolls of the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, which includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of those books were written at different time periods, as you already know, uh, by different people. Uh, but they became the symbol of God's presence among his people. The temple, as I said, Solomon's temple was destroyed and partially rebuilt. Uh, it lasted until the first century BC and then was totally rebuilt uh, by Julius Caesar. No. By Herod the Great, I'm sorry. Uh, by Herod the Great, the first of the Herod clan, right? There were seven Herods. Uh, the first of the Herod clan uh, rebuilt the temple. That was the one that was destroyed in 70 A.D. And again, it was totally destroyed, never to be rebuilt. And it was a sign of God's withdrawing his protection and guidance from them way that he had given them over 2,000 years because they refused to accept Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when he stood right before them in person. They should have known better. And as we will see in the following weeks, uh, how Judaism developed little by little. That's an important point that I really want you to see today is the growth in this nation, which is part of God's plan to develop a culture uh, that will represent him on earth. And unfortunately, as I said, uh, they became an exclusive nation rather than an inclusive nation. And that is not what God wanted them. So, at the time of Christ, and they refused to accept him, and in fact went beyond uh, all reasoning and crucified him in the same way that they uh, murdered all of the literary prophets. Uh, God said, enough is enough. I withdraw my protection that I promised to Abraham 
and Moses and David and all the prophets are now with God and given to all of those who accept Jesus Christ as Lord. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, the point that Victor is making is very important. Victor is making, excuse me. Uh, it's very important. Uh, God did not just wipe out the Jewish people. He did part of that back in the 8th century B.C. when the kingdom was separated. You had the north and the south. And the north became very uh, rebellion, rebellious against uh, the Jewish laws of Moses and started to worshiping all kinds of pagan gods and so forth and so on. And through the Assyrians, God wiped out the northern part of Israel uh, and took uh, all of those people or those that could help uh, the Assyrians and carted them off in slavery uh, to Assyria, never to be seen again. In their place, they took all of the ne'er-do-wells, the bums, the jailbirds, whatever part of the, the grammar, and brought them into northern Israel. Those became the Samaritans. So, it is the Samaritans that Jesus, uh, the people at Jesus' time, hated so much. And uh, I think if you asked any of them as to why, uh, they wouldn't be able to tell you. But it was because the Samaritans were not Jews, but they were living in and among the Jewish people. And they tried to assimilate, they tried to adapt some of the Jewish customs but they retained their own faith. So they were neither one or the other. Uh, they were neither exclusively one or the other. And that is why they were so disliked, uh, because of this exclusive uh, belief of the Jewish people, and now they had these foreigners living in among them who were trying to assimilate into uh, Judaism and yet retain their own customs and traditions and beliefs, etc. So there was animosity that developed right from the beginning and even lasted down uh, to the time of, of Christ and the destruction of uh, Israel, and particularly Jerusalem and the Temple in 70 AD. Uh, so that is why uh, the Jews, I hate to use the word hate, but Nevertheless, dislike the Samaritans so much. Uh, now, he could have done that again in 70 AD, but he didn't really want to because that would not have worked uh, in God's favor. That would have not had any purpose. In fact, it would have worked against him. So what happened is... Let me do just a little diagram here. 
you all had that circular idea of God, all right, and that is really God's plan of salvation. Yes, that went right there. Uh, and it is really a, a diagram of, in theory of the history of Judaism, all right? So, if the Jewish people started out at this point, and as we say, go around the time of God the Father in creation, and all of Judaism is established in, in this time period, and then you have the time of Christ where And then you have this period here, the Holy Spirit. Judaism went off on its own. Whereas Christianity continues on. Uh, these two will probably never, ever come back to each other. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know if you can see it there. All right. Uh, so it's not that the Jewish people were wiped out. That wouldn't have done God any good. That would have only worked against him because he's still a loving person. The Jews can come back and be saved, but they have to come back through Jesus Christ. It says Christ himself has said, no one can come to the Father except through me, meaning Jesus. Let's see. No. They do not recognize Jesus because of the Trinity. The Trinity is one of the biggest stumbling blocks uh, to the Jewish people. Their holiest prayer is the Shema. What starts off is God is one. There's other words to it. Anyways, and this whole idea of oneness is what keeps them from accepting Christ who is part of the Trinity. Alright, because we say that yes, there is only one God, but there are three persons within that one God. And that is difficult, almost impossible for the human mind to try to understand, but nevertheless, that is our belief. Now, when we say persons, we don't mean three bodies, three human bodies. Look at it this way. I am a father, I'm a grandfather, and I'm an uncle. I'm only one person. I'm only one body. But I have those three different affiliations. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, because I can't be have the same relationship to all three persons, but nevertheless, I can have a relationship to my cousins, my children, you know, and my grandchildren. I that piece of that. But the Jewish people cannot seem to accept that. And you have a few 
so-called Christian uh, groups who won't accept the Trinity either. They, they honor him and recognize him, as do the Islam, the Islamic people. Yes, uh, he's mentioned, and interestingly in the Quran, Mary, the mother of God, is the only woman mentioned by name in the whole Quran. Yeah. But they do not accept Christ uh, as Lord. Yes, Lisa? Jews for Jesus, yes. Yes. Now, if they accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, they have the possibility of being saved just like the rest of us. And just because we are Catholic, that doesn't mean just because we're Catholic that we're going to be saved, too. you got to be careful. There are, as I said before, God is perfect love, but he also is perfect justice. And just because you have your birth certificate baptismal record, that doesn't mean it's going to get you into heaven. There's a few requirements. Okay. Very important uh, very important thing to think about. Yes, Rita? Well, I think that's a very nice way of putting it. Uh, they're not ready. They've been ready for 2,000 years, uh, but they are being presented by one natural source or another, but then again, is God's way of saying, uh-uh, no more. Well, Jesus was living. Yes, Jesus was living, and when he was living in front of them, they didn't accept him. Yes. Yes, there's all kinds of, of beliefs out there to avoid reality. That's right. They, they went on, like I showed it up here, they went on. And it's interesting. If the Jewish people would only read their own writings, I've, I've done this many times before, but it always uh, helps to reinforce it. If you go to this Psalm 81, Go to Psalm 81. Uh, I'm drop down to verse 9. It says, Listen, my people, I give you warning. If only you would obey me, Israel, there would be no foreign, there should be, there must be no foreign God among you. You must not worship an alien God. Now, we today have a sort of a strange way of thinking, well, there are no gods now except the one true God. Uh-uh. 
Money is a god to many people. Uh, sports is a god to many people. Uh, the entertainment industry is a god to many people. All right. Work is a god to many people, etc., etc. Okay. There must be no foreign god among you. You must not worship an alien god. I, the Lord, am your god, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my words, and Israel did not obey me. And so I gave them over to hardness of heart, to follow their own designs. See, that's exactly what this represents. They've left the plan of God's salvation, and they're off on their own. So I gave them up to the hardness of heart to follow their own designs. But even now, here's the hopeful part, even now, <laughs> if my people would listen, if Israel would walk in my paths, in a moment I would subdue their foes against their enemies and loose my hand. Those who hate the Lord would tremble with their doom seal forever. But Israel I would feed with the finest wheat and satisfy them with honey from the rock. So, the hope is still there. The door is still open. And that's true for anyone of any nationality, any background. If you turn from a sinful way and accept Jesus Christ, you have the capability, the possibility of eternal life, of salvation. Right. And I put it that way because uh, it's not up to me to say you will. I say that it is possible. You have to work that out with your God. Okay. With God himself. Yes? At the time of Yes, they were. just asked a question. At the time of Christ, the Jews were expecting and looking for a Messiah. That's true. They referred to him as the Holy One of God. Messiah is sort of an extraction of that through various languages. You know, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin, etc. Alright. So you've got to be careful Messiah isn't something, a word that Jewish people use commonly today. All right. But, uh, it is, uh, they are still looking for somebody to come, but what they were looking for was somebody to remember. At the time of Christ, they were under the domination of the Romans. And even from the time of the release from Babylon, Back in the 6th century, 539 B.C. All right. That's when they released under the auspices of Cyrus the Great. Nebuchadnezzar had been conquered by Cyrus and uh, killed. 
So Cyrus released all of the Israelite people from Babylon. And not only this was part of God's plan again, uh, not only uh, released them, but aided them in returning uh, to Israel, giving them back all of the uh, all of the temple utilities, uh, vessels, etc., that were taken out of the temple at the time that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it uh, in 587 B.C. Uh, and allowed them to go back to Israel and even help them. But they were still under the domination of the Persians. And then the Greeks conquered the Persians, so then they were under the domination of the Greeks. And then the Romans conquered the Greeks. So, you see, they were never again sovereign rulers of what they called the promised land. And they began to realize that, or oh, maybe around the 4th century B.C. And so that is when the whole idea of, they knew that God was in heaven. I mean, that was established way back in the time of Moses. But they never thought about mankind returning to be with God at the end of time. You know, that was never in their mind. Had no Jewish writings would ever refer to that. But around the 4th century, they began to realize that there would never be uh, sovereign rulers of their own anymore. And so they began to think about, well, maybe God meant that the promised land was with him. It took a time for them to realize that. And then they thought, well now, after that was sort of accepted, not by everybody, but a good number, uh, then they began to think, well, who's going to lead us there? You know, Moses led them in earlier days. Uh, David led them in earlier days. Now, who's going to be like David? going to really uh, get them into this new promised land. But their misinterpretation even of that was the new promised land would be here on earth and it would be released from the Romans. And that is what the whole interpretation of release would be. Not into heaven back with God by the release from the domination of the Romans. They were looking like somebody, yes, more like David than, than Moses. Yeah. They're still waiting. Yes, they're still waiting, even though they, you know, through the graces of Harry Truman and the uh, United Nations, they gave them back, and now they are sovereign rulers of their country again. And they're still waiting. Yes, Matt? No, but, you know, I think that's a good point. Now, here's here's an interesting... Eleanor just asked if what I said about the donkey coming into Jerusalem on, I mean, the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem on a donkey was sort of a prefiguring of uh, Christ coming into Jerusalem on a donkey on what we call uh, Palm Sunday. Well, I'm not so sure, but 
Here's an interesting book called A Dwelling Place for God. It is written by uh, Ruth Spector uh, Lassell, a Jewish lady who became a Christian and has taken these three or four chapters of the book of Exodus and the building of the Ark of the Covenant and relates virtually every item, every stick, uh, as my mother would say, uh, in building the Ark in some relationship to Christ. It, it is a beautiful book, uh, very sentimental, uh, very devotional. The only thing is, if this had been written back at the time of Christ, or before, the people would not have understood what she was talking about. You know, because they had no idea who Christ was. Uh, so this would only have meaning for people today if they wanted to read it in a devotional manner for that purpose. And it's beautiful, very well done. Uh, I, I would recommend it as interesting reading, but that's all it could be. It's just interesting. There's no way to factually put it into... Uh, any other form. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, I... Yeah, but now, the question here is, as it states in chapter 26, uh, is it? Yeah, so 29. 29. Uh, verse 21. Okay. Yeah, it talks about the vestments and, and the sprinkling of blood. Now, they didn't drench the thing, you know. They might put a little bit here. That's oh, a lot here. Oh, yeah. I thought that they So, yes. Direct connection. Thank you for reminding us. Uh, and this uh, this little book here brings a lot of that out. Yeah, I I really recommend this for personal reading. It, uh, it's not something that you could dwell on over a period of time or teach a class on. But uh, I, I think it's quite important. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for helping us to understand Judaism and how it relates in many ways uh, to Christianity, but at the same time, help us not to make the same mistakes that the Jewish people made or are continuing to make. Give us the strength and the grace to open up our minds and our hearts to you and not to be afraid to discuss our faith other people who may not believe the same as we Give us the courage to do that so that we might, in our little way, be a light to the nations. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you all things.